0: 2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com.
1: Hey, very glad to have you along today for Open Line Thursday here on EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. Jack Williams is away this week. I am Tom Price. Uh, Very glad to be filling in uh, along with our Thursday host, Father Brian Mullady. How are you, sir?
2: I'm just fine, thank you. How are you?
1: doing very well. and i'm uh, I'm uh, glad to see that you are fit and uh, fit and fiddle or fit as a fiddle, however that works. Uh, mm-hmm. you're still on vacation out there. your your retreat there in Alhambra, right?
2: Two more days. <laughs> two more
1: days and then heading back to the home place back so,
2: to Portland.
1: very good. And uh, we do have some open lines for you if you have a question for Father Brian Milady eight three three two eight eight e w t n that's eight three three. If you're listening outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code, uh, which in most cases is the number 1, and then 205-271- 2985. If you'd like to shoot us an email, that is perfectly fine. The address openline at EWTN.com. Openline at EWTN.com. Be sure that you put either Thursday in the subject line or uh, Father Brian in the subject line so that we can uh, do a little matchup for you there. All right, and uh, before we get to the phones, though, Father, I know that you want to talk about a big week in the life of the Church, and that is, uh, on Monday, we celebrated the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary.
2: Yes, I do want to talk about this. It's a very old doctrine. Of course, it was only defined infallibly by Pope Pius XII, 1950 or so. But um, it's a very old doctrine. I was doing some research on it. And I discovered that even the Lutheran reformers believed in the assumption of Mary,
3: <laughs> Lutheran,
2: <laughs> Martin Busser. Wow. Um, it, it follows the whole idea that Mary, of course, to whom Jesus' body came forth, represents to us the final fulfillment in her assumption of the whole uh, dynamic of what the creation of the world is about. That's why, if you recall, uh, one of the principal texts for this is Revelation, with the woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and the crown of 12 stars. Because what this feast summarizes is the fact that all that is diversity in nature comes forth in the unity, which is God, and seeks to return to him. So nature, of course, would be the motions of the planets and the sun and the moon and the stars and all the things that happen in the lowers of creation. Well, all those things seek to return to God because they seek to return to unity. But uh, they can only do this regarding God if they are able to transcend the material order, which they can't do. So in other words, they have to find fulfillment in a being that can be material and spiritual at the same time, which is basically us, because we have a physical body, but we have an immortal soul. The soul also seeks unity uh, and diversity with the first cause of the world through knowledge, and that would be the beatific vision. Aristotle talks about this when at the beginning of the metaphysics he says that all men by nature desire to know, and this knowledge can only be finally attained when the first cause of the world is directly experienced. But we can't do that. He knew he couldn't do it by our own power of our own intelligence or ourselves. So we needed grace. Grace, of course, is brought forth to us who suffer from the original sin and and Mary's womb and the one who'll die on the cross for us, who is a person
3: mm-hmm.
2: that is divine, but a human nature. And in this, we Jesus' assumption, uh, excuse me, ascension, we see all these things all joined together in the final purpose of creation, which is the glorification of God in Christ. It's only fitting that the body from whom his body came should, as the first member of our church, as the first of all believers, as only a human person, also share in this. Now, this is a deproof, but it's an attempt to try to show that if we want to know why we're here, mm-hmm. if we want to know what humanism is all about, the final experience of humanism, Mary, when she is assumed that the heaven stands there as a sign to us, this is what it's all about. This is what you're created to be, Christian. You're created to see God in the face in heaven, and have your body participate in this. Your body in this risen state. Now, in the Eastern Church, this feast is celebrated the Dormition of Mary, the sleeping of Mary. And the reason is because though Mary would have experienced perhaps the death of the Virgin, has never been defined as such. Mm-hmm. Almost everybody believes that Mary experienced a kind of death, but we all don't. We all think that it was not a corrupting death. But the term is difficult for some people. And when I did some research on this, I discovered that most theologians hold that Mary experienced a kind of death. But it was like a sleeping death, like Snow White, you know, with the rosy cheeks and all that <laughs> yeah. stuff. And then immediately, then she uh, was assumed into heaven by our Lord. So it's like a sleeping. In other words, the corrupting death is what results in the original sin and her body would never have experienced any kind of corruption Mm -hmm. as her soul never experienced corruption, but there would have been a transition between earth and heaven. And then finally, it's very interesting that the whole scripture stands like bookends between the woman, the child, and the serpent at the beginning. Mm And in the book of Revelation, you have the woman, the child, and the dragon at the end.
1: Yeah.
2: And so the idea again, you know, we've had callers here who wonder why it's why God created them in this horrible world. Well, God I continue to refer to the catechism, the old catechism. Question two, why did God make me to show forth his goodness and to make me happy with him in heaven? When Mary is assumed into heaven, she shows us this graphically if we look to her as the sign. Now, of course, this isn't rivaling Jesus. It's pointing to the power of our Lord.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, well, very good, and thanks for unpacking that. Yeah, it seems to me, Father, that the Baltimore Catechism certainly served us well for many, many years, didn't it?
2: Oh, yeah. Well, um, we when I was a boy... In Catholic Grammar School, when the nuns taught us in the 50s, we even had uh, spelling bees with the catechism. Really? Yeah, we'd stand around the room, and they'd start with question one, and if you missed, you had to sit down.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. We
2: memorized the whole thing, practically.
1: Yeah, Yeah. that's that's great. Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady in progress here. We're going to go to the phones in just a moment at 833 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Uh, we're going to um, take a quick uh, email here from Todd, Father. Todd says, what is the Catholic view of sexuality, and how does that apply to how same-sex attracted people should live it out?
2: Well, the Catholic view of sexuality is that God created male and female, yeah, and then said increase and multiply, uh, that's right in the book of Genesis. Mm-hmm. And as is seen in chapter two of the book of Genesis, when it's not good for man to be alone because there's not two sexes, and uh, also because man can't give himself as a person totally and completely to another. And so, God from Adam in his rib, now, of course, if it had been his head, she'd be his superior, and mm. his foot, she'd be his inferior. Mm-hmm. From his rib, God creates Eve. When the two see each other, the man names her, he's named all of creation and not find anyone else like himself to whom he can give himself fully. And the woman allows herself to be named and then of course they have uh, relations and they have little, I call them trinities. They're all images <laughs> of the Holy Trinity. Uh-huh. And um, the, the Catholic view of sexuality is that we're not alone and we can't just have one sex because God isn't alone. I mean, uh, he has a trinity of persons, and he spends all of creation or all of eternity giving and receiving in truth and love without extortion. And that's what sexuality is supposed to be. That's why it has to be a one man and one woman and indissoluble. So same-sex attraction is the denial of that because it separates little trinities from the relationship which is supposed to bring them forth. And actually, I would maintain that both the contraceptive mentality and the same sex phenomenon mm-hmm. uh, are the origin of much of our difficulties and they're related to each other because as soon as you separate children from sex, uh, it's all over.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Todd, thanks so much for your email. In a moment, we're going to be talking with Ann in Nebraska, also Patty near Daytona Beach. Lines are open for you here on Open Line Thursday, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Stay with us.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com.
1: Very glad you're with us on Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. We are here to take that call of yours at 833 833- 288-EWTN. We begin today with Anne in Nebraska, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Hello, Anne, what's on your mind today?
0: Hi, thank you for taking my call. Uh, My question is, um, Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead in Colossians and in Revelation, and he raised Lazarus from the dead in um, we read about that in the Gospel of John, and so that has always confused me a little bit, um, because it seems like Lazarus was raised before, before Jesus rose.
1: Okay.
2: Well, the, well, that's an easy question to answer. Okay. Lazarus died again. Lazarus is only raised to the manner of this life, not to eternity or have a resurrected body. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead in the sense— but the resurrection is the final completion of human life. And once you rise from the dead, you don't die again. Okay. So the, the life there is two different, totally different things that's being spoken of. Although of course the raising of Lazarus of the dead shows Christ has the power
1: mm-hmm.
2: over um, life and death.
1: Okay. Uh, Anne, is that helpful for you?
0: Very much. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you so much. And that opens up a a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN if you have a question for Father Brian Mullady. 833-288-3986. Patty is listening uh, near Daytona Beach, Florida, this afternoon, uh, listening on the EWTN app. Hey, Patty, what's on your mind today?
0: Hi, good afternoon. I was wondering what the Church's thoughts are on...
1: Natural healing through Reiki. Okay.
2: Through what? Reiki. Oh, I, I don't know much about Reiki, so I don't think I can answer your question.
1: It's a uh, it's a New Age term that. that yeah, I, I know
2: I, I know that, but I don't know what it entails. Here is
1: here is my recommendation, Patty. Do give Johnette Williams a call on the program Women of Grace and that airs on uh, EWTN Radio at 11 a.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday. Um, I think she's not going to be on tomorrow, but uh, do call her up on, on Monday of next week. And uh, actually, Wednesday would be even better because she does a whole program uh, on, you know, practices of the new age. And I think she can give you a, a, a lot better answer uh, on your question about Reiki. Thanks so much for your call.
2: Yeah, I had to do some research. And I will say this, that New Age is an attempt to substitute uh, kind of an automatic spirituality Mm -hmm. for something that's not – well, as something that's not spiritual. Uh, It doesn't involve morals necessarily, and it doesn't involve freedom necessarily. Um, And this crystal gazing and stuff is really weird in my opinion. There
1: you go. uh, (laughs) Patty, thanks again for your call. And do give uh, Johnette a call next week. Here's a question now from Roger. I know we are initially justified by grace, but I also know we can lose our justification, which is why we need confession. Does that mean that when we go to confession, we are re-justified? What do you think?
2: um, I think, again, you need to make a lot of distinctions. Uh, It becomes... It really is very uh, not helpful to just take one little sentence and a phrase and build an entire theology around
3: it. Mm.
2: Uh, Justification, first of all, consists in our rightly ordered character. It's not the same as the virtue of justice. So it has to do with the attempt to reunite the passions with with the intellect, with the will, and the will with God. So justification, yes, begins in faith because we can't, experience spiritual healing unless we believe in the healer Mm -hmm. on the other hand it doesn't end in faith remember luther put alone in the barge of the bible no uh uh-uh it's not faith alone faith is the beginning of our justification but it has to be completed by works and by works we mean charity but primarily now in confession what we do is seek to restore charity to our souls which we've lost, and not in this unless it's a sin of apostasy, which would be when we lose faith, we're not being re-justified necessarily, but our justification, which originally occurred in Baptist, is becoming living again. You remember, there's a difference between living faith and dead faith.
3: Mm.
2: So uh remember the early church had this long argument, the Donatist heresy was a part of it about whether if you'd you had to be rebaptized baptized in the sense of that kind of re-justification. And they were very much of the idea, no, baptism is once and for all. But in the sense that you're able to live your justification, you have to have charity and grace, and therefore, and repentance and absolution we return to having what the ju- justification by baptism led us do to begin with, which is to have our faith enlivened so that it's enlivened by love and union with God.
1: All right. Roger, thanks so much for your email. It is Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN. Taking your calls right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 Two eight eight three nine eight six. We have two lines open right now. Aaron, listening to us, a first-time caller from Metairie, Louisiana, listening on the Great Catholic Community Radio. Hello, Aaron. What's on your mind today?
0: Hi, uh, I have a question about forgiveness and reconciliation. I've been told that I heard it repeatedly. Jesus forgives us, and He cannot retain our sins. Once forgiven through the sacrament of confession, our sins are not retained. Uh, we've been granted the grace of forgiveness but i've also heard that at the end of your life you'll have to account for everything you've done including your sins. so which is it does he retain them or are we going to be accounted for them at the end of our life
1: okay
2: well it's somewhat like the other questions
3: <laughs> uh-huh.
2: the catholic option is not either or it's both and okay uh, we don't believe in either scripture or tradition. We believe in both scripture and tradition, and they're not inimical to each other. The, your question strikes at the notion of punishment, and there are two kinds of punishment for a sin. The first is eternal punishment, where we lose grace, but the second is temporal punishment, where, which affects our disorder, which led us to lose grace to begin with. And also affects the way we live grace here on earth, because even though we're forgiven our sins, unless we atone uh, not for uh, eternal punishment, God is, that's, that's what you said is absolutely true. Our sins are not retained, but our moral weakness that led us to create, uh, to commit them, is still a part of us. It's, that's not wiped away. So the classic example would be, suppose I had a, oh, I don't know, a, a very close friend whom I loved dearly and loved me dearly, and that uh, friend had a prized possession. Now, if you're a man, you might say he had a Ferrari. <laughs> all
3: right?
2: If you're a woman, you might say he had a, this very beautiful, beautiful dress. She had this beautiful, beautiful dress. Well, I become angry with my friend and I destroy their prized possession. My friend then I'm filled with instant remorse and I beg forgiveness. And my friend's an especially good person and forgives me. Okay. Our we're still we're okay with each other now, mm-hmm. but there's two things that still need to be resolved. The anger that led you to act in such an unloving way towards someone who loves you. And of course, the Ferrari or the dress is still sitting there destroyed. Yeah. Uh, so at the end of time. Uh, and that's just what we do to atone for in purgatory. If we haven't experienced our purgatory on earth regarding these temporal problems, our own inner lack and what we've done to people. And a lot of people can in the, on earth can do their own purgatory. For example, if you're dying of cancer, you can offer the pains you have for your own sins and the sins of others. But as a member, it's temporal punishment we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, then you're ready to receive Jesus completely in love without any of the things that you've done uh, affecting this. And remember, our doctrine is that if the last minute of your life, even if you're Hitler and you cause the death of millions of people and you repent, that God accepts that repentance. However, there's always billions of people you kill.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: <laughs> and something has to be done about that and, uh, and purgatory after death uh, you can't do that by your positive works like you can on earth so you have to have a passive purgation not an active purgation and indulgences are where we out of love because we're in union with those people after all they're, uh, the union of love transcends death We can affect by our active works using the infinite treasure merit of Christ, their passive purgation, either to resolve it completely in a plenary indulgence, or partially in a partial indulgence. But the simple answers to your question is: regarding the eternal punishment of lack of hell, yes, Christ resolves from those in confession. Regarding the temporal punishment, Well, that still needs to be resolved for you to be um, totally uh, free and happy to receive Jesus once you die.
1: All right. And we thank you so much, Aaron, for your phone call from Louisiana. Thanks so much. Quick question here, Father, as we're going to break. This is from Aaron. Why do we call men Father when the Bible says not to? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Well, you don't call your own father, father. I mean, yeah. Uh, Christ is giving us a grammar lesson there. All right. Uh, he's had a bunch of more important things to do than give us a grammar lesson. What the Lord is telling us is that all authority, fatherhood, teachers, etc., all have their ultimate source in God. He's the primary one. Now, in the church, we call priests father because they participate in the bringing forth of the life of grace through their offering of the sacraments, especially the Eucharist. So it's not an attempt to rival God's fatherhood, Mm -hmm. but an attempt to recognize that whatever uh, good we may do by communicating the life of grace in the sacrifice of the mass, for example, we do also as ministers of the ultimate father.
1: Okay. Well, there it is. And uh, Aaron, thanks so much uh, for your email. And if you would like to send us an email for a future show, here's the address, openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. Be sure you put Thursday in the subject line or Father Brian in the subject line. That way we can uh, match your question with exactly uh, the right host. That's how we do it here on EWTN's Open Line. In a moment, we're going to be talking with uh, Jim, driving through Florida this afternoon. Also, Russell in West Virginia. Bill is standing by in Moorhead, Minnesota. And a couple lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. It is Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
1: Very glad that you're with us today on EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. I want to tell you about something uh, that is now available from EWTN's uh, religious catalog, It is Jesus the Good Shepherd's Rosary and Pouch. This unique rosary made from natural olive wood from the Holy Land. An oval, full-color Jesus the Good Shepherd icon graces the center. On the reverse side is a Jerusalem cross with the crystal at the center. The solid olive wood beads are linked together by sturdy chain with a very nicely detailed silver-toned crucifix. The coordinating pouch that it comes in features Jesus the Good Shepherd. On the front, Psalm 23 on the back. It's uh, very easy to go in your pocket there, four by six inches. It has a crucifix attached to the zipper and a gold finger loop. And by the way, there are nine other styles available. Visit EWTNRC.com for more selections. Again, check it out at EWTNRC.com. All right, back to the phones now. Here is Russell in West Virginia listening on the great St. Paul Radio. Hey there, uh, Russell, what's on your mind today? Yes, uh, I was uh, raised in, like, the Trinity, and then I got around other people, and they were telling me about the unity stuff, and I, and I would say, well, you know, it's, it's, it all in the Old Testament talked about God, and on the New Testament, it talks about Jesus. So, when the Virgin Mary had Jesus, I felt like, that is that
3: God in the
1: in the flesh.
2: Okay. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, the Mary brings forth the human nature. Jesus is man, but the person is the person of the Word, the divine person of the second person of the
1: Trinity. Okay. Appreciate that. Russell, thanks so much for your call. All right, we're going to go now to uh, Jim, driving through Florida, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio. Hello, Jim. What's on your mind today?
3: Yes, sir. I'm a out-and-proud homosexual, and I was, I'm being stumped by the attraction to male bonding when Jesus never spoke uh, against homosexuality
1: one time. Okay.
2: Well, Jesus didn't speak against homosexuality because it's all considered to be a sin in the Old Testament, the Jewish religion. And uh, the Jewish religion is, of course, what we fulfill. So the Ten Commandments and the Book of Genesis and, oh gosh, the prophets and all that never speak about same-sex attraction. It's true that it was practiced in the uh, Gentile world of the time people like the Greeks but uh, the Jews didn't have to talk about that because marriage was considered to be the only um, uh, what would you say the only um, way to experience human sexuality as it came from God and the Christian tradition took that over
1: So there it is. Appreciate your call there, Jim. Thanks for listening to us in Florida. Bill is listening in uh, Moorhead, Minnesota, on the great Real Presence Radio. Hello, Bill. What's on your mind today?
3: Uh, Hi, Father Mulaney. Uh, uh,
2: I wanted to ask you about what is faith? Is faith more of an intellectual process that we go through, or is it more an emotional process, like when you fall
3: in love with a woman,
2: you know? All right, well, the faith we speak of in Christianity is not an emotional process. And it's not an either-or thing, again, either. Um, I know today people underestimate the intellectual part of faith. But that's a Protestant option that comes from the 19th century from very difficult European theology or philosophy, especially exhibited by Immanuel Kant and the protestants because they totally devalued the intellectual nature of faith basically wanted to make it like an emotion you know uh, it's it's like piety and it doesn't have any content necessarily it's just you feel dependent on the universe and this is also the source of freemasonry you know that says that all religions are equally the same provided they produce this feeling of dependence on the universe. There was a very famous Protestant divine, Germany, uh, in the early 1800s who was a successor of Kant, who said that religion is the foe of creeds. Um, So uh, really, you don't have to have any content to it. Mm. And the whole thrust of a lot of the... uh, Revivalist religion is, as long as you're producing these feelings of exaltation, etc., you don't need to define it by anything. It resembles a creed. If you've ever been to a revival meeting, I mean, it's true. They're, They're very emotional. Now, it's not against emotions, but it's not an emotion. Faith is a habit of mind by which we assent, the divine truths, and are allowed to prepare ourselves for heaven. So, today, in many catechetical programs, they'll say, don't teach doctrine, just make people feel happy to be here, even Catholic ones. Well, that's ridiculous. Doctrine is what what Jesus was about. Secondly, they'll say, well, it isn't about passing a test, because you can pass a test Let's say you can pass the test in what the nature of the Trinity is and not believe. Well, that that's certainly true. But the trouble is the propositions in the creed are about persons. Mm -hmm. And if you say you love, let's say the father, son, and Holy spirit, but what you're loving is false. Let's say you think Jesus is a creature completely like the Arians did. Then your love is false and you're, and you're, and you're not loving what, christ preached so though it's true it's not just an intellectual exercise the intellect is extremely important in this regard and since it involves truths we can't prove the will necessarily enters into it also not but by, by the will to believe blindly but in the sense that we uh, will to assent to something that we don't totally understand and never will And that's why faith involves to be perfect and living both truth and love, both faith and charity, Mm. with of course hope put in the the center. Sure. So you can't, no, it's not an emotional experience, though again, there's nothing wrong with feeling emotional in faith, but it's not an emotional experience. It's primarily an intellectual conclusion of assent well, I firmly believe all the truths that the Holy Catholic Church reveals, be, and, and because um, God has revealed, who neither receive nor be deceived. Well, again, when I was a little boy, we used to say before school every morning in the Catholic school, "The Acts of Faith, Hope, and Charity," and they were very specific about what they said.
1: And hmm. well, there you go, Bill. Uh, thanks so much for your call. Glad that you're listening in Morehead on the Great Real Presence Radio. It is Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN, and we did get a question from M.D., who's watching us this afternoon on YouTube. M.D. says, Father, could you please talk about passive purgation? What is that?
2: Passive purgation means that you can't do anything to speed up the process of your inner wholeness. Hmm. But it, it, what God is, in a sense, that's why we use this image of fire. But, you know, in, in, um, in fire, things are purified. Uh, one of the classic images from Scripture is in Malachi, where he talks about he shall refine them like a refiner's fire. Well, how does a refiner refine metal? He heats it,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and as the metal becomes aqueous, in other words, it's against its nature in a sense because it's not according to the nature of Mm. metal for it to be aqueous. As it becomes um, uh, liquid, the impurities weigh less than they did when they were in metal and they flow to the top. And the refiner scrapes away the impurities. Now, if you were to ask the refiner when he knows that the metal is ready to be fashioned into a beautiful vessel, He will say, when I can look into the crucible and see my image, then I know it's ready.
3: Mm.
2: Now, on earth, we can participate in this by our active works. But once we die, we don't have a body until the resurrection of the dead. Uh And so we can't participate personally in uh, actively resolving all those things that we have in our character And all the wounds we did to other people and uh, and our own woundedness, in a sense, uh, just by our own power. So, passive purgation means that we allow God's grace to help to keep the crucible of our souls in order for the impurities then to be scraped away by him. But we can't scrape them away.
1: Beautiful. Appreciate that, MD. Thanks so much uh, for watching us this afternoon on YouTube. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. If you call right now, we can probably get you on today's show. 288 EWTN. That's eight three three. I want to tell you about a wonderful weekend program that we have cooked up for you here on EWTN Radio, and that is the Fathers of Mercy Hour. If you've ever uh, listened to our great program, Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes, Well, he is one of the speakers that you'll hear on the Fathers of Mercy Hour. Also, Father Bill Casey, uh, certainly a great friend of EWTN, as are all the great Fathers of Mercy out of uh, southern Kentucky there. It's a great program. We have some of the great talks that they've given, uh, retreat teachings over the years, fantastic series. Fathers of Mercy Hour, some of the times that we air it. Sunday mornings, very early, 4 a.m. Eastern, also Monday at midnight Eastern, which would be uh, 9 p.m. on uh, Sunday evening. This week, it's going to be The Necessity of the Spiritual Life. So do check out The Fathers of Mercy Hour right here on EWTN Radio. Henry just checked in. Henry, Father says, Thomas Aquinas says that everything has a proper place. Now, does this leave any room for things acting outside of their nature?
2: Well, yeah, because they're acting outside of their proper place.
3: Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> uh, also, uh, remember now, uh, according to St. Augustine, evil is not a thing.
3: Hmm.
2: It's a lack of a thing, right, what right. a thing should and ought to have. So, uh, <laughs> yes, everything has its proper place, but when the proper place isn't. Recognize either phys- it doesn't occur either physically or morally, that's ex- considered to be evil. So, for example, my leg has its proper place in my body to help me to walk.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But if I'm born with a curved tibia, then I experience physical evil, not moral evil, a physical evil in my leg so that I limp. Or as I get older, of course, I might have injured my knees. My feet are very bad so I can't walk like I should, all right? That's out of its proper place where its proper order should be. In a similar way in our souls, when we act in such a way as to form our souls outside of their proper ordering, then uh, our soul uh, is formed in evil. Now, of course, we can always repent, but if we don't, then what happens after death is that God just takes us at our word and says, well, if all you want is yourself, and you don't want to be in your proper place. That's what you get.
3: Mm.
2: So hell, remember, is always compared to a rebellious city that is full of noise, not music and not silence. Yeah. And uh, the difference between physical and moral evil is that in physical evil, the lack in this being causes the lack in the action. So the curvature of the tibia or my flat feet caused mm. me to walk Poorly. Whereas in morals, the lack of the action loving in the wrong way causes the lack in being, which is what uh, the lack of order in my soul okay. that should occur.
1: Okay, Henry. Thanks so much uh, for your question. Here's one from Amy. This is actually something we were touching on during the break, Father, when we were talking. Uh, Amy says, "What is liberation theology, and why is <laughs> it and and why is it not Catholic?" <laughs> Well,
2: liberation theology actually comes from, strangely enough, uh, Karl Rahner. It's actually German theology mm-hmm. from the '60s. Okay, and its primary proponent was a person named Johannes Metz, who wrote a book called Theology of the World, who was a student of Rahner's. And in this book, he maintains that the world now has become God in Christ. So there is no difference between the natural and supernatural orders. Hmm. So uh, those of us who are working for our cultures or for justice or whatever, are actually doing divine actions. And in Latin America, this became connected to class warfare. So that eventually in the church, the bishops became looked upon as part of the ruling class And therefore, they didn't necessarily have to be listened to. And then they formed these base human communities, which weren't parishes necessarily run by and in the structure of the church. And they just sort of did their own thing and a part of their own thing involved trying to experience justice, which is a good laudable goal. There's no doubt about it social justice, but social justice by violent means, as Marx does. Mm. So much so that in the Sandinista Revolution in Nicaragua, where Ortega is now proving himself to be a huge dictator, they yeah. used to write on the walls, blessed is the womb that bore the Sandinista Revolutionary instead of Jesus. <laughs> mm. Now, it, it, that's not to justify the injustices that occurred in Latin America on the part of the rich and the ruling class, because the church has always been against those, at least the the theology of the church has. But what these people did was they saw you not in nature and grace, as to say that there wasn't really a transcendent God, and we were actually causing God here on earth, and any sign of any kind of other order, we had to uh, cleanse the church from, so instead of the traditional mass, you know, they had these communion services there. No more cassocks. One one priest said he finally understood what it meant to be a priest when he abandoned the cassock and clerical dress. And you remember that when John Paul II made his visit there, he publicly lectured, Heller camera. Yes. One of the dissident priests at the airport <laughs> on, the, on the
1: tarmac. I remember that, Yeah.
2: Yes. Um, Wow. So the problem is – the primary problem is it doesn't leave room for grace conversion and even prayer for the uh, other. And also it has a tendency to collapse the natural and supernatural orders together so much that the natural order becomes absorbed – supernatural order becomes absorbed in the natural order.
1: Uh, As we were talking, I just checked with, uh, I I believe it's the the Register, National Catholic Register, is reporting now that in Nicaragua, the the government there has shut down something like 13 Catholic radio stations right? for being Catholic radio stations. Right. Horrible. All
2: right. So the trouble is you can't determine the just from the unjust in this earth where the church rejects the So called unjust, it helps to kill them. Yeah. I mean, that's that's and the clergy, especially. Yeah. But they had armed clergy, and uh, and that's true. The police forces in some of these cases were horrible people hmm. and, and executing priests and things. But it, the waters get so muddied that you can't tell if it's a political execution or a yeah. hatred of the church or what.
1: Yep, so it's true. Wow. Plenty to pray about. It's open line on Thursday with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN. Leonard wants to know: How far can you go? How far can you go into a thought before a sin happens?
2: (laughs) Oh gosh, you you can't set limitations like that on thinking. What I will say is this: A thing only reaches the level of a sin not when it's entertained for a long period of time. But when you consent to it in your will. And the way I would normally put this is if you would have done the deed, except for some extraneous circumstance, like the, there was someone there, and you just didn't do it because you didn't want it to be witnessed, uh, then it probably reaches the level of the sin of a thought, and, and that's what Christ talks about. Mm-hmm. You know, looking at a woman with lust in your heart uh means making her an object of use. Now But, but, you know, we often have fantasies and scrupulous people try to control their fantasies, their images, whatever. And all the old spiritual authors are absolutely clear that you may as well try to keep images of men in your mind as the sun from rising. (laughs) And sometimes the images come at the weirdest times, like during mass that are uh, bad images. It's the question is, how do you relate to them once they come? If you consent to them, and you enjoy thinking about them, and uh, you would have done it, as I say, had you the opportunity, then that reaches the level of a sin. But there's no real hard and fast rule for this, that you can, can't reduce moral life to such a
1: calculus. Yeah. Really. All right. And uh, Leonard, thanks so much uh, for your question. Nancy says... Could you please help me understand a few things here? Number one, the Immaculate Conception. And number two, why is Mary called full of grace?
2: All right, well, the Immaculate Conception is the doctrine that Mary has to be among the redeemed, you know. She can't just be have no sin, period, for no reason. Mm-hmm. And the Church accepted the explanation, because it was long debated because of this problem, that... Um, in light of the participation of Mary in the cross, because Christ, after all, the body that comes from her is the one that died on the cross, and and her own assumption into heaven, that she received the the singular grace, the only person who ever received this grace, of not having original sin touch her, either spiritually or physically. So she would not have experienced the corrupting death Though she may remain capable, they say, of committing a sin uh, until her annunciation, she never did actual sin, uh, no venial sin, not mortal sin, and not original sin. Mm. And so that's why she's called All Holy. Uh, or S. Maria, you are all beautiful, Mary, because original sin doesn't take place in you, not because she's not among the redeemed. But because God miraculously keeps it from entering her, even though she's conceived by Joachim and Anne in their womb. All right. So uh, that's the, the source of
1: those ideas. Very good. Very uh, good. Nancy, thank you so much uh, for your question. Here's one now from Belinda. That line in the Our Father, lead us not into temptation. Doesn't this line imply he is leading us to a trial for our own sanctification?
2: Uh no, uh first of all, that's a translation into English. Ah, okay. <laughs> of the original languages. Mm-hmm. And I would tell you to beware of trying to alter doctrine or whatever because of English translations.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh when I was in Italy, one of the famous lines was traditore traditore. A translator is a traitor.
3: <laughs> oh boy.
2: Uh, in the, in the, the translations we have, we recognize as being authentic on the part of the church but it's very difficult to communicate certain things in one language and another. And lead us not in temptation basically refers to don't allow us to be subjected to trial if it's possible.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. Okay. Very good. And uh, thank you so much for your question, Belinda. Here's one now from Will, who has a predestination question. Will says the council of Trent says that humans cooperate with grace But the Catechism says that man's cooperation with grace is itself a work of grace. So where does man's own action enter into things?
2: Okay. Um, There's two kinds, uh, two experiences, two effects of grace. Sanctifying grace we're talking about now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The first is justification and the second is merit. Justification occurs without our cooperation justification is done only by God. Now we have to be open to receiving it, but that's it. Because God never forces himself on the unwilling soul. So this is often called operating grace because God brings it forth and he alone brings it forth. And of course, once Christ comes, Christ shares in that because of his human nature. But once you receive grace, let's say in baptism, Mm Then as you reach the age of reason, you have to correspond to what's in your soul by your own free choices. In this, you participate in allowing grace to influence your character and your actions more and more. So in classic terms, this is called cooperating grace. And since your participation is different than mine, we're rewarded in a different sense at the end of time, not by receiving a different vision of God, but because of our charity, which is the principle of merit, Mm -hmm. we are open to receiving more of what's given, the vision of God which is given to us, or less. This is called cooperating grace, and it's what merit is. Now, merit is a very difficult term for Protestants, and the term comes from St. Augustine. And all it means is that God's participation is huge, but I do have my little share in it.
1: Ah, okay, very good. Thanks so much uh, for that question. Uh, Father, could you leave us with your blessing?
2: May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen.
1: Amen. Father Brian Milady. thank you so much for joining us today.
2: My pleasure.
1: Uh, By the way, uh, I misspoke there earlier that story. If you want to read about that uh, regarding the uh, Nicaraguan government shutting down those Catholic radio stations, go to catholicnewsagency.com, catholicnewsagency.com. On behalf of Father Brian Mullady, I'm Tom Price, along with our great team here. We'll see you next time on EWTN's Open Line. God bless.